Romans chapter 13. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Today we're going to begin, I'm not sure how many weeks this is going to take us, but a few weeks through understanding the Christian and government. And there's a reason for this, and that's Paul devoted the first part of Romans 13 to this critically important part of a Christian's experience before God and in the world. In order to understand this, and just to put it in our minds, I want to read you these first seven verses. And we're not going to get very far into them today. And I think you'll understand the depth of them as I just simply read it. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Paul says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. One of the buzzwords that's captured our generation certainly at least in the educational system, also shows up through the pundits when they begin arguing, and you hear it sometimes around the water cooler, is the word worldview. What is a worldview? It's the way you see the world. And we see the world through different lenses. We see the world through different eyes, not only house to house and neighborhood to neighborhood, but county by county, state by state, country by country, all around the world, we see the world a little differently. Probably the greatest crashing of my worldview as a Christian with different Christian worldviews happened, oh, it's got to be 15 or 20 years ago, my first trip to Russia. 
I was um, speaking, and it was about 32 below zero outside, and we were inside, and it was about 115. There was a steam radiator, and it was so steamy hot in there, and there, there's a, uh, an idea in that Russian culture, at least in that area I was, that if you were to open the window and let cool air in, it would hit you, and you would become sick. And so we were just sweltering in there for day upon day in this class I was teaching. At the end of the class, there was a, an older gentleman, so sweet. He had been on the front row and had taken notes. At one point, was weeping because of the truth we were studying. He's a dear, dear brother. And he wanted to thank me as I was leaving. Have you ever had something happen to you and it just shifts to slow motion? He grabbed my face and leaned toward me and puckered his lips. And I couldn't move my face anywhere. <laughs> and he drew me in and planted one on my lips. and then began to talk to me through a translator, and there was no, no, I had to just take it. It was a sweet moment for a lot of reasons, but I just remember thinking, we don't see the world exactly the same. <laughs> Nancy Piercy says, understanding worldview is a bit like trying to see the lens of one's own eye. It's a great illustration. We do not ordinarily see our own worldview, but we see everything else by looking through it. Put simply, our worldview is the window by which we view the world and decide, often subconsciously, what is real and what is important, or unreal and unimportant, end quote. She's right. Have you put any thought into your worldview? Maybe a little bit, but have you ever just thought, what is my worldview? How do I interpret events, people? One of the things that the Bible accomplishes in the life and mind of a believer is a complete overhaul of our worldview. Old things pass away and new things come. We see things differently. We perceive things differently. We evaluate things differently than we were as unbelievers. And can I just make a statement that I hope doesn't get any challenge here? Christianity alone has a worldview that makes sense of the world. Only biblical Christianity can look at the world, look at the events of the world, look at the rulers of the world, look at suffering and pain and joy and difficulty and make sense of it. And not just the truth about Christianity, but the truth that Christianity sees in everything. That is our lens. That's, that's the, the way that we look at the world. It's the window through which we understand, see, perceive, and interpret everything, or it ought to be. Francis Schaeffer famously said, Christianity is not merely religious truth. It is total truth. The truth about the whole of reality. It's quite a claim. I mean, do you, do you think he's right? 
Does the Bible really shape the truth about everything we see, about everything that happens? Christians ought to look at the world differently than unbelievers do, interpret the world differently, use the world differently, enjoy the world differently, serve the world differently, love the world differently, hate the world differently. We should try to save the world differently. And Christians are to relate to the governments under which they find themselves differently than those who don't know our Savior. Let me say again, I, I believe that the Bible makes sense of the world and the governing strategies, philosophies, ideas about giving leadership over this world. The Bible makes sense of that in a superior way than every other philosophy. We don't have, by the way, an alternative worldview, a different perspective. We have an understanding of how the creator of this world has ordered and perceives his creation. He's pulled the curtain back and allowed us to see as the creator what he sees and what he thinks about this world. We have the inside scoop from God. A worldview, then, is a set of presuppositions and beliefs that, that we use to interpret, form opinions about our souls, our lives, our purposes, our duties in the world, our responsibilities to work and family, and even our interpretation of truth and social issues. Now, think about it. The Bible actually defines the nature of man, the world itself, the purpose of every life, truth, morality, sin, salvation, heaven, hell, pleasure, pain. But the world also has systems to define or deny those things as well. Now the reason for that setup is to say this. When it comes to looking at the government, when it comes to looking at not just American government, but British government, Sudanese government, Australian government, Chinese government, Looking at any government in the world, when it comes to looking at government, that is such a huge part of our life. We would expect, as Paul defines our worldview, that he would include how to think about government. And guess what? He does. It's in keeping with Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let's remind ourselves of that. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, that's externally, as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, your reasonable service of worship, the way that makes logical sense before God. And do not be conformed to this world, but be metamorphosized, transformed, changed by the renewing of your mind, thinking differently because of the gospel, so that you may prove what the will of God is. You may show what God's will is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I want to confess from the very beginning of this little series that I have fears for my own heart and I have fears for you as Mission Road Bible Church and those who would 
show allegiance to the Lord through this local assembly. With the avalanche of news coming at us day after day, cable and internet, I'm afraid that our hearts and minds might be led to hope in governmental change or despair from governmental missteps. Our hope is not in Washington. Our hope is not in any capital. Now let's back up for a second. This is a longer introduction because of what we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. What are your expectations of government? I mean, if you were to list them out, what do you expect? What does your heart expect from and about government? Do you expect the elect, expect rather to elect Christians for the purpose of making America the kingdom of God? I sat in a sermon in the South one time and heard an entire exposition that our job as Christians was to mobilize and elect Christians so we could take back America and make this the capital of the kingdom of God on this world. Really? You know, where is that? Do you expect that electing moral politicians will cause a reverse of the depravity of man? Do you expect that God will preserve America because he looks with favor toward our nation? Do you subconsciously think that God might have an American flag by his throne? Do you expect for the church and the gospel to be accepted in our culture, be given favor by politicians, or... Have you read the book of Acts and saw the collision between Christianity and a wicked government? What does God say about the Christian and government? Now, I want to give you a few caveats lest you misunderstand from the very beginning, okay? The idea of a voting republic like America was not in Paul's mind when he wrote Romans. As he was penning Romans, if you just tapped him on the shoulders of Paul, one day... Think of this. There's going to be a government, a nation uh, over the seas from where you are, and they are going to elect representatives who will decide how to vote and how to orchestrate and how to govern the people. It's going to come from the people up. He would have said, what fantasy have you been reading? And yet, God's Word anticipated our responsibility not only to our government, but any Christian's responsibility in any governmental situation, in any time, anywhere in the world. Another caveat, there's nothing wrong with being involved in the politics of our day. We do live in a republic. We live in a voting republic. I think you ought to vote. You ought to vote your conscience. We ought to elect people that we think would, would more glorify the morals of God than would not. I mean, you're given a choice, right? We don't, we don't go vote for bad people so that we can be persecuted. Even if that happens, we don't have to vote that way. There's nothing wrong with being involved with the political process. That is a part of God's gift to who we are and where we live. We should never be involved with sin or moral compromise from our government. We'll look next week at situation in Acts where they had to say, we will obey God, not man. 
We honor the government. We obey the laws. But if they violate God's word, we're commanded to choose God over law. Another caveat, the heart of Paul's message here in Romans 13 is not to promote or condemn political action. That, that wasn't what he had in mind here. We have to make sure that we don't put American politics into Romans 13 because this is not what Paul had in mind. He was living in an absolute oligarchy where people looked with, from the politician's view down and gave and dispensed the law at their own whims. Paul was writing under the regime of a dictating Caesar. And there are many who read this passage today and think he might have been writing in America. He wasn't. He was writing in a very unjust political system. He was writing in the midst of a government that would one day execute him for believing the gospel. And the aim of this passage is not about changing government. If we can vote to change government, I'm, who, who would not be behind that? But that's not what this passage is about. It's not about influencing policy, electing desired officials, or even running for neighborhood dog catcher. This passage is about being model citizens. Now, as an application of that, if part of your, your um, uh, desires in being a model citizen, citizen is being an uncompromising politician, have at it. So I want you to hear me very clearly. I understand political action, and that can be done in a godly way. But that's not what's going on in this passage. With that, just as an introduction, I want to look, begin looking, I should say, at what the Apostle tells us about how a Christian should, here, listen, respond to the government under which we find ourselves. And here's the deal. This passage fits any Christian in any time in any government in all of history. And I want to make that point because we, if we drive too much of the American political system into this, we miss the, the beauty that Paul wrote this to every Christian everywhere in every time under every government. So as a big picture, and we're, we're not going to get very far in this, I want to show you three Christian responses to governing authorities. They, these follow three imperatives, three commands that are in the, in the passage. I'll show you that in the coming weeks. Three Christian responses to governing authorities. And we're only going to look at part of the first point today. And I think you'll understand why as we get into this. The first Christian response Paul gives us in verses 1 to 4, here it is. Ruling authorities are to be obeyed by Christians. Ruling authorities are to be obeyed by Christians. Underneath this, we're going to break it down even further, and we're only going to get to the first sub-point today. So just be patient with me, okay? Underneath that, letter A, why? Because they are established by God. This is the foundation. This is where Paul starts for good reason. He attaches government to God, not in a way that maybe the, the uh, moral majority might, but... 
certainly attaches God's providence to it. Verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For, because, there's no authority except from God. And those governing authorities which exist are established by God. Now let's break this verse down very carefully. And again, we're not going to get farther than just this one verse today. First, you need to know what Paul is saying here about submission to government and the idea that God is the establishing governor over governors. And when I use the term governor, I was rereading my notes this morning, and I was afraid when I use the term governor, you might think of the state governor. I mean governor as anyone from the local to the national politicians, someone who governs. I'm using that as a generic term. First, you need to know that Paul is saying something that is completely unique in his time. It's unique in that what Paul says about how a Christian responds to government, what he says in these seven verses is unparalleled in any writing that anyone has found in 200 or more years before he wrote this. Historians, and outside of the Bible, we'll look at other things the Bible has said about this in a moment, but secularists, no one said this except Paul. There's no record of anyone saying this about a citizen's response to the government. Now, the governing authorities said this, you must obey, you must obey, you must obey, but someone who is rallying the, the citizens to obey the government, this is unparalleled. So if you were sitting in Italy, in Rome, and you got this letter from Paul, and you read this, you would have looked around at each other and said, I've never heard this before. Completely unique. Thales didn't say this. Socrates didn't say this. Plato didn't say this. Aristotle didn't say this. This is unique. But not unique to the Bible. We'll see that in a moment. First, look, let's be clear. The first sentence is, is so crystal clear. Every person, it begins with every person, no exceptions, comprehensive. is to be in subjection or is to submit to the governing authorities. Now, I, I wish that I had our governing authorities in the room right now as well because this applies to them as well. No one is above the laws that God has established. Every person, you know what the Greek means about, uh, about the term every person? Here it is, ready? It means every person. Governor, down to dog catcher, down to citizen. Every person is to submit to, be in subjection to, put themselves in a state of being under obligation to the governing authorities. You'll notice, by the way, that he uses the term authorities three times, and four times rather, in three verses. We'll come back to that. Basically, here's what he's saying. Christians are to live in such a way that we are model citizens. That's the main point. We are to be model citizens. We are to be respectful of the government, not obnoxious about things or people with whom we disagree. 
And I've had several dozen. I'm not talking about anyone specifically when I say this. I've had so many discussions about this. I was afraid when I said what I'm about to say that someone would say, oh, he's ratting me out in front of everybody. No, I'm ratting me out too. Ratting a lot of us out. The implications of this for social media are profound. Let me encourage you. Facebook, Twitter, Instagracious, whatever it's called, all of that. I wish it was Instagracious. Be careful. Be careful what you post. Be careful what you repost as a believer, as a blood-bought son or daughter. Be careful. Be, her- be careful how you comment. Be careful what you repost into the social media orbit. Since we're skating over thin ice, let's just pick up speed, okay? Be careful using the First Amendment. First Amendment does a lot of things for us. One of the things that it ensures is freedom of speech. The First Amendment gives us freedom of speech, but don't use that as an invitation to publicly sin with your social media account. John MacArthur writes, Yes, we should speak out against sin, against injustice, against immorality and ungodliness with fearless dedication, but we must do it within the framework of civil law and with respect for civil authorities. With respect for civil authorities. We are to be a godly society, doing good, living peaceably, within an ungodly society. He's talking about the church being godly in the midst of an ungodly society, manifesting our transformed lives so that we are saving, we are showing the saving power of God. End quote. Now, there's an obvious exception. If, if the government or any authority or any law requires disobeying God's commandments or a biblical mandate, then the choice must be made to obey God and not man. That's clear. Why? We'll come back to that in a moment. Why? He tells us right here in this verse, because there's no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Please notice there's no footnote in my Bible about the good ones or the bad ones or the ones we like or the ones we dislike or the Democrats or the Republicans or the dictators or the rulers. It doesn't say that. Folks, hold your seatbelt. Governing authorities are established by God. Not always as a blessing to its citizens, but if you read God's Word, sometimes it's as judgment to its citizens. Daniel understood what Paul said. You might want to turn here. This is interesting. Back in Daniel chapter 2. Does God really establish? Look, let me say again, as you're turning to Daniel 2, vote, vote your conscience. You want to campaign. There's nothing wrong with that. 
influence legislation. Praise God for that. We should do all we can. But if we, quote-unquote, lose at the ballot box, God didn't lose. You know the, the stage in, uh, on which Daniel finds himself in Daniel, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's world power. The, the leading world power of his time was Babylon. The leading king of the then-known world was Nebuchadnezzar. And he had quite a run-in with God. Daniel 2, verse 21, It is God, it is he, who changes the times and the epochs. Now God, uh, God is seen not only as the governor of governors, but the governors of times and epochs, seasons in the world history. He removes kings and establishes kings. Is that clear? He removes kings. He establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. That's, that's so refreshing in this context. Those who even want to judge and rule in a moral sense can access the blessing of God even outside of being a redeemed ruler. God will still honor morality and justice. Daniel 2 verse 38. You, O king, are the king of kings. Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Daniel tells the king, I just want you to know, Nebuchadnezzar, that you are the king of all kings. You're the most powerful ruler on the planet right now. But you didn't get there by family, by ordination, by vote. You got there because God gave you this kingdom, the power and the strength and the glory. Wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and he has caused you to rule over them all. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Daniel 4, flip over there. Nebuchadnezzar figures this out after running around like a cow under God's judgment. This sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Look down the page, Daniel 4, verse 25. That you may be driven away from mankind, your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. This was the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar. You'll be given grass to eat like the cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind. And, here it is again, He bestows it, the rule of mankind, on whomever he wishes. Is that clear? Chapter 4, verse 32. You'll be driven away from mankind. I just read that. Never mind. Well, it repeats it. I'm sorry. He did, look at the, at the end of the verse. He bestows it rulership, authority, kingship on his own, determined, providential desire. Solomon adds this, Proverbs 8, 15, By me kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles 
all who judge rightly. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. Listen to this. He turns it, the king's heart, the ruler's heart, he turns it wherever he wishes. Jeremiah wrote, the Lord says, Jeremiah 27.5, the Lord says, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. That's an interesting passage because it says that God will actually honor those who want to pursue him, but the nation that turns, you read down the passage, speaking of Israel, the nation that turns its back on God, he will eventually turn them over to unjust rulers. God has never one time in the history of the world, God has never been surprised by the results of an election. He's never been surprised by the throes of a coup. He's never wrung his hands, elbowed the angels and said, do you see what's happening down there? Go fix it. Now, to fully understand this, we need to, we need to, wade, we need to wade into divine sarcasm. You say, what is that? Psalm 2. This is important in looking at the establishment of kings and how God views kings and rulers who rule in ways that don't please him. Psalm 2, you know this well. But listen to it in the context of what Paul's saying to the Romans. He looks at the reign of the rulers, their misapplication of their authority for their own purposes and not the honor of God. And he says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Here it is. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, there's multiple contexts that are being applied here. The original context, the Lord's anointed, would have been the king of Israel. The plotting of the nations around him, around Israel, to come against Israel. But we also know, as we'll see in a moment, it has prophetic um, dual application looking down through time at the Lord's ultimate anointed the king of kings himself, Jesus. But look at his response. When kings get all frayed, when they try to go outside of God's plan, when they try to execute their own agenda on the planet, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord scoffs. He makes fun of them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his purity saying but as for me I have installed my king upon Zion my holy mountain he did with David he will with the Messiah I will surely tell the decree of the Lord he said to me you are my son today I have begotten you <laughs> David and the Messiah Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. That didn't happen to David and it will happen to Jesus. 
and the very ends of the earth as your possession. That certainly didn't happen in the time of Israel's reign. It will happen one day. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. If I could stand in Congress tomorrow and say one thing, it would be this verse. Show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Warning to do what? Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Now I think this is purely prophetic looking to the reign of Christ that He may not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. And how blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. We have to start where Paul starts. Let's elect who we can elect. Let's do everything we can in our power. Let's influence policy as we can. But after votes are tallied and judgment rendered, we have to remember that God is still in sovereign control. There is an implication for us as believers that has been particularly convicting for me over recent years, and I, I hinted at it earlier, and that's getting in debates, talking to people about presidents and governors and senators and representatives. The First Amendment to our Constitution does allow for freedom of speech. It means that we as citizens are, get this, completely open to criticize our government and its leaders without fear of consequences. But, does that give us permission to disobey Philippians chapter 2? Turn to Philippians 2 for a moment. Let me ask you a question as you're turning there. Can a believer be a complainer about the government and exercise godly submission at the same time? Can we complain and submit at the same time? This is going to come, by the way, uh, into full focus next week. <laughs> Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. That resist means to push back against. It can even mean complaining. But listen to Philippians 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And the word grumbling there is murmuring, it's complaining. Disputing is flying off with our mouths, arguing about things that don't make eternal difference. Why is this important? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, listen to this, children of God above reproach in the middle, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life. Part of our submission, and I'm, I'm telling you this as someone who, man, I can complain really well. 
I can watch an hour of Fox News or CNN or MSNBC and, and I can really, I can launch into some pretty serious pontification. I want to confess to you, it is easy for me to complain about ruling authorities. Does the First Amendment give us a pass from Philippians 2? Does it? Because we have the freedom to speak out against our government, does Philippians 2 give us the freedom to complain? I don't think it does. Back to Romans chapter 13. Look back at, while you're going there, just what we picked up, the context. Remember, there were no chapter divisions uh, when, when this was written. Verse 17 Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Respect it. What is right in this context, submitting to the government is right. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, not Facebook. That's my interpretation. We're going to be looking closely in the coming weeks at the implications of this. But I, I just want to um, either join you or have you join me in just being convicted about the fact that it's really easy. It's easier to be a complainer than an evangelist. It's easier to get mad about what I see on the news than it is to tell someone that this kingdom is going to pass away and the kingdom of God lasts forever and that they could be a part of that? What makes you passionate? Does politics and sports get you more riled up, excited, and frustrated than God and His kingdom being promoted and fought? From the beginning of this study, I hope we can understand that we must see governing authorities over us as what Paul does here, appointments by God. That's why we kind of joke about every, every presidential election the night before, you can go to your friends and say, I have with 100% authority, I know exactly, I know who's going to win. And they look at you and say, how do you know that? And you say, God said, where did God say the guy who God wins, or the lady who God wins, who God wants to win, will win. Period. Do we believe that? Do you really, really believe that? Paul did. And Paul was talking about Caesar. First Timothy, Paul told his young disciple... Chapter 2, verse 1. I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. And then he says this. For kings and all who are in authority. I hope I don't lose my ministry or my credibility by telling you this. If I look at the last year, I'm sure if I had a calculator, if, if God had a calculator and he, he showed me this, I have complained more about politics and governing people than I have prayed for them. That's just wrong. 
forgive me, pray for me. When's the last time you prayed for the salvation of your local officials, for the wisdom they need to rule, or the salvation of your president, governors, representatives, senators? Do we know their names? It says to pray for them here. We should probably know who they are. Everyone writes, everyone, it's easy for people, let me say it again, most of the letters written to politicians are to try to change something. What if we all wrote one to our politicians that said, I'm praying for you today and your children and your wife or your husband that you would understand the will of the Lord. Here's a passage I hope you read. What kind of lights in the darkness are we being? Paul told the Philippians that the way we, we show ourselves as lights in the world is we don't complain. We don't get upset. Don't let the signature of your faith be that you understand and can bemoan, can bemoan politics. Let the signature of your life be Christ. First time I ever went to South Africa, I was in South Africa politics from apartheid all the way through the last 50 years is fascinating. And when I got there, my, my friend, Joel James, he's preached in this pulpit before, he picked me up and we were, we were talking about South Africa. It was my first time there. I'm looking at everything. I'm looking at the poverty right next to wealth. And I was just overwhelmed by being in a, a, a third world country next to first world neighborhoods. And, and I began asking him questions about politics and Mandela and Robben Island and all these things. And he kept saying, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. What about this? I don't know. What about uh, Mbewe? I don't know. What about what? I don't know. I don't know. And I said, Joel, you live in South Africa. Do you know anything about politics? He said, I don't have time. I'm trying to shepherd my church. That was convicting to me. What is your Christian signature about the government to a lost and dying world? Is it submission and prayer and honoring? What does the world think of our Savior when we present ourselves so upset about governing officials and rarely show that kind of passion for people who are going to die and go to hell? We'll say it next week. There's nothing wrong with being an American and being involved in the political processes. But that's a secondary priority in response to the government than to submit, be good citizens. Can you sneak ahead? And in verse 2, understand that there's a way to resist and there's a way to disobey. What's your worldview? Does it include a sovereign God who appoints kings and governors and judges and senators and representatives? Or do you really think that given enough opportunity, we can make the mistake that the pilgrims made when they landed on our shores, which was, we're going to make this the kingdom of God.
and that didn't work out so well. I trust this will cause some good discussions in your home about how you can pray for our leaders and what it means to submit and yet not sin in our submission.